Section 2 of On Christian Doctrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Pinto. On Christian Doctrine by Augustine of Hippo. Translated by J. F. Shaw. Section 2. Chapter 10. To see God, the soul must be purified. Wherefore, since it is our duty fully to enjoy the truth which lives unchangeably, and since the triune God takes counsel in this truth for the things which he has made, the soul must be purified that it may have power to perceive that light and to rest in it when it is perceived. And let us look upon this purification as a kind of journey or voyage to our native land, for it is not by change of place that we can come nearer to him who is in every place, but by the cultivation of pure desires and virtuous habits. Chapter 11. Wisdom Becoming Incarnate. A Pattern to Us of Purification. But of this we should have been wholly incapable had not wisdom condescended to adapt himself to our weakness and to show us a pattern of holy life in the form of our own humanity. Yet since we, when we come to him, do wisely, he, when he came to us, was considered by proud men to have done very foolishly. And since we, when we come to him, become strong, he, when he came to us, was looked upon as weak. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And thus, though wisdom was himself our home, he made himself also the way by which we should reach our home. Chapter 12. In what sense the wisdom of God came to us? And though he is everywhere present to the inner eye when it is sound and clear, he condescended to make himself manifest to the outward eye of those whose inward sight is weak and dim. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Not then in the sense of traversing space, but because he appeared to mortal men in the form of mortal flesh, he is said to have come to us. For he came to a place where he had always been, seeing that he was in the world, and the world was made by him. But because men, who in their eagerness to enjoy the creature instead of the creator, had grown into the likeness of this world, and are therefore most appropriately named the world, did not recognize him, therefore the evangelist says, and the world knew him not. Thus in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Why then did he come, seeing that he was already here, except that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe? Chapter 13. The Word Was Made Flesh In what way did he come but this? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Just as when we speak, in order that what we have in our minds may enter through the ear into the mind of the hearer, the word which we have in our hearts becomes an outward sound and is called speech. And yet our thought does not lose itself in the sound, but remains complete in itself and takes the form of speech without being modified in its own nature by the change. So the divine word, though suffering no change of nature, yet became flesh that he might dwell among us. Chapter 14. How the Wisdom of God Healed Man Moreover, as the use of remedies is the way to health, so this remedy took up sinners to heal and restore them. And just as surgeons, when they bind up wounds, do it not in a slovenly way, but carefully that there may be a certain degree of neatness in the binding, in addition to its mere usefulness, so our medicine wisdom was by its assumption of humanity adapted to our wounds, curing some of them by their opposites, some of them by their likes. And just as he who ministers to a bodily hurt in some cases applies contraries, as cold to hot, moist to dry, etc., and in other cases applies likes, as a round cloth to a round wound, or an oblong cloth to an oblong wound, and does not fit the same bandage to all limbs, but puts like to like. In the same way the wisdom of God in healing man has applied himself to his cure, being himself healer and medicine both in one. 
Seeing then that man fell through pride, he restored him through humility. We were ensnared by the wisdom of the serpent. We are set free by the foolishness of God. Moreover, just as the former was called wisdom, but was in reality the folly of those who despised God, so the latter is called foolishness, but is true wisdom in those who overcome the devil. We used our immortality so badly as to incur the penalty of death. Christ used his mortality so well as to restore us to life. The disease was brought in through a woman's corrupted soul. The remedy came through a woman's virgin body. To the same class of opposite remedies it belongs that our vices are cured by the example of his virtues. On the other hand, the following are, as it were, bandages made in the same shape as the limbs and wounds to which they are applied. He was born of a woman to deliver us who fell through a woman. He came as a man to save us who are men, as a mortal to save us who are mortals, by death to save us who were dead. And those who can follow out the matter more fully, who are not hurried on by the necessity of carrying out a set undertaking, will find many other points of instruction in considering the remedies, whether opposites or likes, employed in the medicine of Christianity. Chapter 15. Faith is buttressed by the resurrection and ascension of Christ and is stimulated by his coming to judgment. The belief of the resurrection of our Lord from the dead and of his ascension into heaven has strengthened our faith by adding a great buttress of hope. For it clearly shows how freely he laid down his life for us when he had it in his power thus to take it up again. With what assurance, then, is the hope of believers animated when they reflect how great he was who suffered so great things for them while they were still in unbelief? And when men look for him to come from heaven as the judge of quick and dead, it strikes great terror into the careless so that they betake themselves to diligent preparation and learn by holy living to long for his approach instead of quaking at it on account of their evil deeds. And what tongue can tell, or what imagination can conceive, the reward he will bestow at the last, when we consider that for our own comfort in this earthly journey he has given us so freely of his spirit, that in the adversities of this life we may retain our confidence in and love for him whom as yet we see not, and that he has also given to each gifts suitable for the building up of his church, that we may do what he points out as right to be done, not only without a murmur, but even with delight. Chapter 16. Christ purges his church by medicinal afflictions. For the church is his body, as the apostle's teaching shows us, and it is even called his spouse. His body then, which has many members and all performing different functions, he holds together in the bond of unity and love, which is its true health. Moreover, he exercises it in the present time and purges it with many wholesome afflictions, that when he has transplanted it from this world to the eternal world, he may take it to himself as his bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Chapter 17. Christ, by forgiving our sins, opened the way to our home. Further, when we are on the way, and that not a way that lies through space, but through a change of affections, and one which the guilt of our past sins, like a hedge of thorns, barred against us, what could he, who was willing to lay himself down as a way by which we should return, do that would be still gracious and more merciful, except to forgive us all our sins, and by being crucified for us to remove the stern decrees that barred the door against our return? Chapter 18. The Keys Given to the Church He has given, therefore, the keys to his church, that whatsoever it should bind on earth might be bound in heaven, that whatsoever it should loose on earth might be loosed in heaven. That is to say, that whosoever in the church should not believe that his sins are remitted, they should not be remitted to him. But that whosoever should believe and should repent and turn from his sins should be saved by the same faith and repentance on the ground of which he is received into the bosom of the church. For he who does not believe that his sins can be pardoned falls into despair and becomes worse as if no greater good remained for him than to be evil when he has ceased to have faith in the results of his own repentance. Chapter 19 Bodily and Spiritual Death and Resurrection 
furthermore as there is a kind of death of the soul which consists in the putting away of former habits and former ways of life and which comes through repentance so also the death of the body consists in the dissolution of the former principle of life and just as the soul after it has put away and destroyed by repentance its former habits is created anew after a better pattern so we must hope and believe that the body after that death which we all owe as a debt contracted through sin shall at the resurrection be changed into a better form not that flesh and blood shall inherit the kingdom of god for that is impossible but that this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality and thus the body being the source of no uneasiness because it can feel no want shall be animated by a spirit perfectly pure and happy and shall enjoy unbroken peace chapter twenty the resurrection to damnation now he whose soul does not die to this world and begin here to be conformed to the truth falls when the body dies into a more terrible death and shall revive not to change his earthly for a heavenly habitation but to endure the penalty of his sin chapter twenty one neither body nor soul extinguished at death and so faith clings to the assurance and we must believe that it is so in fact that neither the human soul nor the human body suffers complete extinction but that the wicked rise again to endure inconceivable punishment and the good to receive eternal life chapter twenty two god alone to be enjoyed among all these things then those only are the true objects of enjoyment which we have spoken of as eternal and unchangeable the rest are for use that we may be able to arrive at the full enjoyment of the former we however who enjoy and use other things are things ourselves for a great thing truly is man made after the image and similitude of god not as respects the mortal body in which he is clothed but as respects the rational soul by which he is exalted in honour above the beasts and so it becomes an important question whether man ought to enjoy or to use themselves or to do both for we are commanded to love one another but it is a question whether man is to be loved by man for his own sake or for the sake of something else if it is for his own sake we enjoy him if it is for the sake of something else we use him it seems to me then that he is to be loved for the sake of something else for if a thing is to be loved for its own sake then in the enjoyment of it consists a happy life the hope of which at least if not yet the reality is our comfort in the present time but a curse is pronounced on him who places his hope in man neither ought any one to have joy in himself if you look at the matter clearly because no one ought to love even himself for his own sake but for the sake of him who is the true object of enjoyment for a man is never in so good a state as when his whole life is a journey towards the unchangeable life and his affections are entirely fixed upon that if however he loves himself for his own sake he does not look at himself in relation to god but turns his mind in upon himself and so is not occupied with anything that is unchangeable and thus he does not enjoy himself at his best because he is better when his mind is fully fixed upon and his affections wrapped up in the unchangeable good than when he turns from that to enjoy even himself wherefore if you ought not to love even yourself for your own sake but for his in whom your love finds its most worthy object no other man has a right to be angry if you love him too for god's sake for this is a law of love that has been laid down by the divine authority thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself but thou shalt love god with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind so that you are to concentrate all your thoughts your whole life and your whole intelligence upon him from whom you derive all that you bring for when he says with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind he means that no part of a life is to be unoccupied and to afford room as it were for the wish to enjoy some other object but that whatever else may suggest itself to us as an object worthy of love is to be borne into the same channel in which the whole current of our affections flows whoever then loves his neighbour aright 
or to urge upon him that he too should love God with his whole heart and soul and mind. For in this way, loving his neighbor as himself, a man turns the whole current of his love, both for himself and his neighbor, into the channel of the love of God, which suffers no stream to be drawn off from itself, by whose diversion its own volume would be diminished. End of section 2. Recording by Rachel Pinto.